The message of this book is not one of anger or blame. It's not one of trying to make people look at the ugly and take responsibility for all of the problems. It is a book that is about helping people to be able to understand themselves and each other a little bit better. Because when I think about the problems in the world today, they are all a direct result of greed, selfishness, and this idea that in order for one person to have and be successful, someone else has to have less or be less successful. Right. In order for someone to be good within society, there must be someone who is bad. And so what we have to do in order to create more heart-centered communities and to heal the divide is be able to look at the other side and recognize that they are, in fact, just like us. Welcome to Soul Rediscovery, where we explore a deeper meaning to life and our human existence through a soul-guided way of living in love, joy, freedom, and abundance. By choosing to live life above the fray of the chaos of society and tuning in to our badass and authentic multi-dimensional selves, we embrace a less stressful and more heart-centered, impactful way of truly changing the world and leaving it a better place for generations to come. I'm your host, Katherine Whaler, and I'm so honored you have joined us. So without further ado, let's dive in. Well, hello and welcome to a new week of Soul Rediscovery. Now that we are officially on track, <laughs> we are established, we are doing an episode a week. Everyone, please give your thanks to my editor, Carmelo, for turning those around so quickly. So this week, we have the most amazing episode, and I'm going to introduce Andre here in a second and his book, Facing Racism. But first, I just wanted to say that unfortunately, our audio was not the best. So if you're listening, I would definitely recommend listening with headphones or earbuds, AirPods, or really turning up the volume so that you're able to hear it really well. Because Andre has so many amazing nuggets of wisdom that we definitely don't want you to lose. And we were bummed that the audio quality is not the best on this one, but the content is so incredible that we didn't want to just redo it. And we felt like it was important for you to hear this original recording. So it's obviously you can hear everything that's being said. It's just a little bit more faint. So I really do recommend listening with AirPods or headphones or something if you have them. So with that said, let's introduce Andre, because Andre, our guest today and the author of Facing Racism, which is the book that we will be discussing, is an amazing human being, an amazing soul, a friend of mine who I connected with through a mutual friend, Dallin, who will be on later on on the Soul Rediscovery podcast talking about tarot. And I feel such a deep, deep, deep soul connection with Andre. And I feel like our work together is just getting started. I feel like this is sort of just that first little kickoff 
of all the things that we actually are meant to create together. So let me introduce Andre because like I said, he is the coolest guy. So he is a personal development writer, a certified meditation guide, and member of the Natural Healer Society. He is passionate about helping his readers overcome real-world challenges by sharing advice from a holistic, spiritual perspective. At 20 years old, Andre became intensely curious about ideas like destiny and purpose, so he began learning meditation, tarot, and energy healing, which gave way to dips into Taoism, shamanism, and initiation into the mysteries. It was through his studies that Andre started facing the larger questions of human suffering and what he could do to make the world a better place. What he found common to all of these systems was one, the power of men and women to transform their worlds by transforming themselves, and two, the irrefutable role of empathy in building heart-centered communities. Andre now seeks to spread this message of empowerment, self-knowledge, and compassion through his writings and interactions with others, as he believes everyone has the potential to reshape the world in tremendous ways if given the tools to take responsibilities for their destinies and the destiny we create together. So, You guys can obviously hear why I didn't want to just scrap our recording and start all over again, because we'll definitely have Andre back for more discussions. But this was such a juicy, juicy, juicy discussion. And I just know that you're going to benefit so much from all of the wisdom he drops and this whole conversation that is so important today and every day about anti-racism work and specifically as white or white-presenting people, what we can do to interrogate our privilege. You know, obviously, I am a white woman, and Andre is a black man. So having this conversation, to me, these kind of conversations, this kind of way of looking at this work, I really do believe is the way forward. Being able to look at all of this from a conscious perspective, I really, truly believe is a big part of what Andre's life talents and life missions are all about. And I am so thrilled and so honored to share this episode with you. And at the end, be sure to listen all the way to the end because we have a very special offer for you. So here is Andre. So hi, Andre. Welcome. Hello, Catherine. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm really happy and excited to be here. Oh, I'm so happy to have you. I'm so, so honored to have you, honestly. I mean, reading your book was like such a joy and I I can't wait to get into it all with you. And I have to tell you too, that right before this interview, I pulled some cards, some Oracle cards, just to kind of center myself and, you know, ground for my day and tune into the energy of this interview. And it was so beautiful because... The card that popped right out was the Seven Star Sisters, which is the the group of the constellation that I work with, the Pleiades, and I hold the energy of. And then literally right on the bottom of the deck in the divine support position, it was the Star Brothers. 
So I just thought, (laughs) I know, right? So I just thought that was so cool because I I feel that from you so strongly that we do have this soul connection and this soul lineage together. So I'm even more thrilled to get into it with you after having sort of that confirmation. I'm super excited to hear that because I know I've been in a place recently where I'm starting to reconnect with my soul family and people I have soul contracts with. Since writing this book, my whole world has kind of shifted. I've told people I've been rearranging the cosmos lately, and it's been very much true. Yeah. Um, for me, I've, I've drawn the emperor a lot of times in my tarot deck. And, you know, that's a card that is all about the physical realm, but also really the, the material world starting to adjust and reflect the work that you've been doing on the inside. Yes. Yes. It's a very divine masculine card, too. That's so cool. I love it. Oh, I, I like I said, I can't wait to get into it with you because I think you're such a wonderful representation of how we as a society should be moving forward and the kind of work that we should be focused on and the way, you know, that we should be focused on it. So why don't you go ahead and just run us through a little bit of a background on how you came to where you are today and what you're doing today. And then I'd love to get into the book and share with our community sort of your inspiration from the book for the book, how you wrote it, and then, of course, the amazing contents of it. Okay, well, starting out, I guess how I got to be where I am today has been a very short but also powerful journey so far. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up very Christian, Christian family. But once I got to college, I started exploring other areas, other forms of spirituality. It was very much a high priestess moment mm. where you start to become aware of other parts of the world and other aspects of reality. And so I, I started out with just meditation and over time started looking into different facets of human history and different facets of understanding consciousness and the unseen world. Mm. Um, that led into studies into areas like Wicca, witchcraft, uh, shamanism, druidry, I was eventually initiated into a a mystery school and really started using tarot to understand the unconscious mind, the the workings of magical energy, the importance of aligning to something greater than the material I can see Mm. and the power that comes with it to create change within and without. And so over the years, I've really kind of been living this journey of personally dipping into incarnation so deeply with my job at Walmart that I almost forgot most of myself. I can't even say almost. Mm. I got so deep within Walmart's world that I lost parts of myself. Yeah. But through 2018, through a series of conscious, intentional, magical workings, I set myself up for a real tower and death moment to, to get back on track. And that really kicked it all off. And since the end of 2018, the beginning of 2019, I've been working very diligently to follow my intuition, follow my calling, and trust that my heart knows the way. Yeah. And so that's really how I ended up getting to this book here in 2020, flashing forward from 2019 to 2020. I've been at this company, this editing and publishing company, where we focused on helping personal transformation authors write their nonfiction books. And seeing what happened with George Floyd Mm -hmm. and 
Breonna Taylor and Elijah McLean and seeing how this is just again a part of the ongoing narrative I felt like I should say something so I found myself getting into conversations on Facebook and social media with people and that really solidified me I guess I had more to say than I thought I did mm. and I realized let me stop arguing with people on the internet and channel this this empowering energy into something that's going to make a bigger difference and so i i sat down to write i i followed our company's process our program and planned out the book decided who i wanted to write to decided on a message i wanted to deliver and just sat down for about seven days every day and this was while i was also working so yeah. after work i just crank it out page after page after page until I had a finished draft. Very cool. Very, very cool. So let's take it back a little bit. So you were saying that it was 2018 that you kind of came into consciousness, really, right? That you really started to explore it. So what sort of prompted that for you? So I was living very much out of alignment with my core beliefs. Mm -hmm. And of course, not... not to say that I was out of alignment with my purpose or my path. I don't think that we're ever really off our path. Yeah. We just don't always recognize it. So I was yeah. where I was meant to be, but it was time for me to wake up. So I was feeling very unfulfilled. And so I ended up doing a, a small ritual that is, I think, still in effect. And it was consciously to get myself onto my path, onto my life purpose. And so I planted a seed, both metaphysically and physically. I planted the spell in the backyard. And from there, my life really started to change. For me, it happened to be a relationship that I really had no business getting into. Mm. And when it came to a, a very abrupt and dramatic kind of end for me, it was like all of the pieces of myself that I was identifying with broke. Mm. And so I really had to recenter and piece myself back together and so what I did was I ended up flying because I was living in Colorado at the time yeah I flew back home to California to grandma's house where I grew up in and I sat and stared out the window and wrote poetry and journaled and let everything out and at the end of two weeks I realized that there was a part of me that's been buried under corporate bs and misrepresentations and misideas of myself. I forgot the writer that I was. I forgot the mm-hmm. creator that I was. I forgot the spiritualist that I was. Yeah. But now with everything else shattered and, and kind of out of the way, that was what was left. And I was like, oh, this is who I am. This is what I need to be doing more of. And so when I found that piece and, and found myself back to normal, I went back to work but with a totally different mindset, a conscious idea that I was going to get out of that. That wasn't me, the the corporate world, and and start really hyper-focusing on doing more of what it is, whatever it is I'm supposed to be doing. Mm. Because that's really where I'm headed. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. And I feel like this book is such a beautiful expression of that. You know, I feel like it's really, like I'm ready for a part two because I feel like you have more to say. (laughs) And more wisdom and guidance to give. And so 
it's it's amazing. I'm very excited for all the people who get to read it. So then that brings us into the present day. And obviously, this is a book for anti-racism work, but it comes from a really conscious lens. So I'd love to kind of talk about that, too, and sort of what your inspiration was. Obviously, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and your own experience, your own personal experiences, but also just what compelled you to to write this. So I've been very blessed in that my personal experience with racism has not been as bad as others. Mm -hmm. I, I consider myself somewhat privileged when I look at the others who live around me. But at the same time, when, so in chapter two, I talked about my personal story with racism. Yeah. And I talked about the effect that Trayvon Martin's murder and trial had on me and my family. Basically, that was the first time that I consciously became aware that racism was still dangerous and very present and Mm -hmm. could actually reach out and touch me. Mm -hmm. Because here was a boy who was my same age, and who was minding his own business. Yeah. And someone who had a chip on his own shoulder decided that this young boy was a criminal and probably didn't deserve to live, had no business going wherever he was going, which just happened to be home. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, thinking about that, what kind of world are we creating for our children, for our families, for our country? What kind of culture are we creating where people who are literally minding their own business can't feel safe because they look different? Because the normal culture, the normal image is one wherein their appearance and their image, their normal is otherized. It's outside of acceptable society. So by no fault of their own, they're already classified as something that perpetuates this idea of them being dangerous and criminal. And so when I think about what's happening with police brutality and Black Lives Matter, I'm very much in support of the idea of All Lives Matter. But The problem is that the people who are saying all lives matter are only saying it as a response to Black Lives Matter. Right. And so for me, what they're not seeing is that when we have these instances of police brutality, they're not treated the same. Mm -hmm. For instance, we, we see all the time the argument, well, white people get killed by police too. First of all, for me, the question is, why are you guys okay with that? Right. role is not to be judged yeah. or an executioner. I always think the exact same thing when people say that. I'm like, um, so again, why are we okay with this if they're killing anyone? Exactly. And if you look at the, the instances that happened a week ago with the 17-year-old boy in Kenosha. Yeah. Yeah. So you have Jacob Blake who was shot seven times in the back. Mm-hmm. And all the information coming out is the suspicion that he was armed and dangerous and all of the things that he could have been involved in and all the reasons why they probably should have or why it's better that he's off the streets now. 
And yet in this protest, we had someone show up who had no right or reason to be there, armed with a weapon that he really had no business with, walking right past police arms, or police lines, excuse me. Yeah. And taking fire, breaking the law. Yeah. Actively breaking the law. Vigilantism is not allowed in the United States. Mm-hmm. Murder and assault are illegal in the United States. And yet, in this moment, these same officers in the same police department were able to detain this person and take him in unharmed. Yeah. Whereas the very reason that protest was happening was because someone else did not get that same treatment, benefit of the doubt or opportunity or consideration. Yeah. He was shot seven times on suspicion. And then here's someone who looks different, who actually committed a crime, but was treated properly under the law. Like, I'm not saying that the the 17 year old boy should have been shot and killed on the spot. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't want anyone to have to go through that. Right, but that there wasn't, there wasn't equity there. There wasn't equality there in the way that it was handled. Yeah. And so this is why we say Black Lives Matter, because yes, all lives matter, but clearly not all lives are being treated equally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so resonant for me to what just happened, because I don't know if you know this, but my school was involved with a shooting and no, I didn't know. yeah, yeah. So when I was in my sophomore year of college, there was a shooting literally right outside my apartment. Thankfully, I was I was working in a play at the time in a theater. Otherwise, I would have been walking home and would have been one of the guy's targets, to be quite honest, because he was targeting white blonde girls who rejected him, which is what I looked like at the time. And the thing that boils my blood the most about how that went down is that his parents called the police, his psychiatrist called the police and told him like, hey, this guy has weapons. He's dangerous. His parents were literally in the car driving out to Santa Barbara to stop him. And the police went by his house and didn't even enter. They didn't even search because they said that he seemed like a nice young man. And I had seen friends be brutally arrested who were people of color for being in possession of marijuana because this was, you know, back before pot was legal. And well, you know, the white kid next to them was doing coke. And so I remember at the time that this happened being so angry about just the inequality there and that this could have been easily prevented if they hadn't just, you know, because he he was white, like he was, you know, predominantly white. And so they were just like, oh, he seemed like a nice guy. You know, like it was just like you didn't even search his house. And yet you're coming into my friends' houses all the time without warrants, without search arrests and arresting them, you know? So in terms of the shooter at your school, I don't believe that the officers were actively racist, or at least would be actively racist, in that they would look at this white person's house and think, oh, yeah, he's an upstanding citizen because he's white. But then look at a black person's house and like, oh, yeah. He's black. This is going to be sketchy. Mm-hmm. Most people don't think that way. I mean, it's definitely there. Don't get me wrong. It's definitely there. Mm-hmm. But what happens more often than not is that the racist thinking or programming is, is deeper seated. And so in this moment, basically, it's whiteness that is looked at as normal and safe. 
and things that are outside of that are what's dangerous and risky. And so the image of danger and risk has been created from images of minorities. And so anything that doesn't fit the image of danger that's attached to minorities is that the, the whatever doesn't fit that image comes through as okay and safe, as recognizable. Right. And so thinking about this, they looked at this, this person's house and said, everything looks to be in order. It's what we recognize as basic, as regular. This is nothing to be worried about. But had they gone to someone's house and saw traditionally non-white images, it would have been more on alert from the start. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't necessarily be consciously because they're in a non-white area, but because the images of danger and threats attached to it put them on edge already. It's like the idea of, of, social, of racial profiling for shoplifters. Mm -hmm. The image of a person in a dark hood, mm -hmm. sketchy, looking at headphones that you already know, is most people already know that these are going to be young people or people of color who traditionally wear these types of images. And so technically speaking, it's not racially profiling, but the image that they use for the profile for the criminal is often very closely associated with people of color. Yeah. Yeah. And you even mentioned this in your book too, with the anecdote of your mom. And I think that it's so important that you, that you bring this up too, because I think that's really what it is. And I think that's what your book does such a beautiful job of explaining in ways that, you know, people can actually really wrap their heads around in a tangible, <laughs> practical way, not just in a rhetoric or you know, a nebulous way, but actually, okay, here's the next step to how do I deal with that kind of unconscious bias, you know, and mm -hmm. I think, I think that's exactly what it is. I feel exactly the same way, to be honest. I mean, I, there were some cops that I believe later came out. I'm not sure if it was those ones, but in that force that, you know, were racist, um, just blatantly. But I think a lot of times it is that, um, it is that just unconscious bias and that that shadow, um, like you talk about in your book, where it's it's just the way that we've been programmed to respond to people, you know. And yeah, I I would love for you to elaborate on that too, because I think that that's the place where the healing can begin is when we recognize that simply as a product of our times and as a product of our society, we unfortunately have that programming, no matter how empathic, no matter how loving, right? No matter how, mm -hmm. you know, non-racist we think we are, we unfortunately grew up in a society that, you know, just all over the place, those stereotypes and those kind of profilings exist. Absolutely. And so when you think about it, um, we have a problem in America wherein we don't necessarily like looking at racism because it's so ugly and no one who wants to feel like a racist. And so when people talk about racism and talk about the history of racism, it oftentimes feels like an accusation. I'll come back to that. What I want to touch on right at this moment is that we have to look at 
the, the great American narrative. Um, where we are now is not anything new. It's not anything that's just fresh, or it's not even a fresh cut that's just being reopened. Like, it's been an ongoing narrative within the history of America. And where we are now is at a point where we can't continue to not tell the story in its totality. We can't continue to omit parts and reframe our Basically, what's happened from my vantage point is that we've, as a society, a place where we recognize that racism is, that the idea that one race is inherently inferior to another is essentially ludicrous and unacceptable in the modern society. Of course, we know that the idea of race in general is, is totally made up. But in social terms, since race is a social construct in our society, um, the idea that one is inherently superior than the other is the definition not people for racism. Yeah. But it neglects the fact that that definition of racism was the the default setting for when most of our institutions were built. So our banking institutions were built when racism was acceptable. Our legal institutions were built when racism was acceptable. Yeah. Like segregation was legal up until the, the 60s. Mm -hmm. Like we have parents and grandparents who right. were around, who were actively told that they could not be around other people, period, point blank, who actively had to live differently because if they sneezed and the wrong person heard it, they could be assaulted with no legal backing because the institution allowed for it. And so now we all know that it's wrong, but because we know that it's wrong, and we don't want to feel guilty about what's happened in our, our shared American history. A lot of people think that it's best to just not about it, scoop it on the rug and let it be in the past. Yeah. But the problem with that is that if we do that, we don't actually address what was created out of that mindset. And so we have cultural precepts. We have stereotypes, we have preconditioning of institutions that are laced with racism and bias that people just don't see. When I wrote this book, the idea was that I took the stance that most people, the vast majority of people are inherently good and actively looking to be decent people, mm -hmm. but they don't see how they're actually causing harm. And if we can get enough people who are looking to fix that part of themselves to embody a, a new way of thinking and to model it and to show others, we can get more people to take ownership of not the, the guilt of racism, but the ability to change what we have if we don't acknowledge that racism exists, we can't fix it. 
And the only reason that we're not acknowledging that it exists is because for a lot of people, it makes them feel like they're being attacked and insulted. It's the shadow at work right. trying to protect them from the, the internal guilt of being called this horrible person. Right. Yeah, I think that's so good too, because it's like, and, and oh, this is what I loved about your book so much. And just, you know, for our listeners too, I just want people to know the lens at which I had the privilege of reading Andre's book in advance is that I was a feminist studies major and a big part of feminist studies is race studies and specifically mm -hmm. um, that of, you know, black feminists. It's a, it's a huge part of feminist studies. And so I've read book after book after book and, you know, essay and article and speech on racism and dismantling racism and dismantling these oppressive structures. And reading your book was the first time that I read, and I loved those texts too, I should say, but reading your book was the first time that I was like, this gets it, <laughs> you know, like this approaches it in a way that doesn't shame people. And I was reflecting on this after reading it too, which I want to get into because I feel like it's what you're getting at is that that's the most important piece of the puzzle, but it talks about race in a way that doesn't shame people that doesn't assume that people just know, right. And experience other than their own that holds space for um, specifically white people, but also non-black people of color doing their own anti-racism work and their own um, personal development in that area, right, to, to serve that cause. Um, and I just, I was blown away by how masterfully you handled this conversation in these short few pages. I mean, I was reading this going like, in a past life, he, he must have done this, you know? <laughs> like he must have had past lives where he, he's written these things, you know? Because, because it just flowed, it just flowed so, so beautifully. And in such a way that it was, it was really practical. It was really, it was looking at everything from that conscious lens of love, but then also practicality. And I just, I really appreciated that. And I have to say too, you know, as a white person, I really appreciated that because I read a lot of texts and I mean, I took them, like I understand my privilege and I wholeheartedly accept that I'm privileged and am actively working to dismantle that. But I read a lot of texts that, you know, would turn a white person off, basically. And I remember thinking, mm -hmm. like, there's, and there's, there's a righteous anger, and there's a righteous, and I get it, and I'm not saying that that's bad by any means whatsoever, or that we should be policing um, people of color and, and Black people's response to things, um, you know, that obviously righteously is there. But just that I think for the lay person, the person who is not spending their whole life engaging with this kind of work, it can be um, difficult, you know, it can be, it can be difficult to read a text where it is framed that they're bad, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I don't even really know a, a better way to phrase that, but I just really appreciated that about your work, that it came from this lens 
of empathy and understanding and seeing yourself in another person because I really think that that's where the healing is. And I think that there's absolutely a place for obviously calling out inappropriate behavior um, on the part of white people and just call out culture in general. I do think it has a place and a purpose, but I personally think that the work that you're doing through this book and hopefully the work of your readers as they read the book is where that true transformation happens and where that true healing happens across this racial, racial divide and being able to see like, yes, we have our differences. Yes, we have, you know, differences in our upbringings and our experiences and our privileges. But at the end of the day, we are human. And because we are human and because we're souls and we're in this thing called life together, you know, we have more similarities than we do differences. And you bring this up not only with race, but also with like a homeless person. And it was so funny because as I was reading your book, I immediately thought of a homeless person. And then literally on the next page, you had it. Um, because I think it's just another very stigmatized part of our society, you know, separating yourself from the other. And even in feminist studies, it's called abjection, where you say, mm -hmm. I am not part of that, you know, and you know this too, as, as, um, you know, an anthropologist and sociologist and everything. And so, yeah, that abjection of like othering, right. And it's when we take that out, mm -hmm. when we recognize that that's there, but then we say, okay, but I'm going to do everything in my power to overcome that and to dismantle that structure that created that in the first place. Again, I think that's where the real work happens. You're absolutely right. And I think you, you hit on so many key points, but what I really want to focus in on and zoom in on is, so I end the book with two, two simple sentences. Mm -hmm. This book is about racism and prejudice. More than that, it's a book about understanding and empathy. Yeah. The message of this book is not one of anger or blame. It's not one of trying to make people look at the ugly and take responsibility for all of the problems. It is a book that is about helping people to be able to understand themselves and each other a little bit better. Because when I think about the problems in the world today, they are all a direct result of greed, selfishness, and this idea that in order for one person to have and be successful, someone else has to have less or be less successful. Right. In order for someone to be good within society, there must be someone who is bad. And so what we have to do in order to create more heart-centered communities and to heal the divide is be able to look at the other side and recognize that they are in fact just like us. You said, you know, we have more in common than what divides us is true on all levels, emotionally, psycho psychologically, physiologically, um, anatomically, um, atomically in, in terms of physics and science. Like, we are so much more alike than we give ourselves credit for. And it's really because of false ideas that we spread about each other and perpetuated mm -hmm. that we're 
we since we have cut ourselves off from being able to see the humanity. And so this happens a lot with social media. And so the social media has algorithms that, that essentially they group people into categories based on common likes and common interests. Yeah. So when they're, they're looking at, so we start seeing Facebook suggest things to you, it's because other people who have liked what currently like are like these other things. And what that allows them to do is pit people and get steer and, and create engagement. The, the dark side of that though, is that you get fed so much of your own beliefs about the world Mm-hmm. that once Facebook decides to let the opposition slip through, those people look crazy, outlandish, inhuman, the worst people in the world. But in reality, they are exactly like you, just on the opposite end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. We all have the same core needs. We all need to eat. We all need to drink. We all need to feel like we belong. We need to feel safe and have somewhere to call home. And if you strip everything away, all the money, all the clothes, all the jobs, the titles, the the locations, if the world were to go through a crisis event and all of our structures fall apart, all we would have left are our bodies and our beliefs. Yeah. Are our beliefs going to destroy us or help us rebuild? And we cannot rebuild if we're constantly fighting each other over things that really don't matter. If our problem with someone else is strictly based at skin level, we always have an enemy. And if there's always an enemy, what are you building? It'll always be under attack. You'll never make it anywhere. And we are in a position where on this planet, we really need more people to to care just a little bit more about something outside of their themselves. Yeah. yeah. And so when I think about what's happening in terms of race, it's just a direct reflection of, of where our mindsets are as a global consciousness. So I talk about, you know, the law of mentalism that all is mind. Yeah, I and really, the law yeah. of correspondence that, you know, as within, so without, as above, so below. A lot of people think that it's only a personal thing, but they forget, or rather they don't, or they're not taught that we have a consciousness as well. And this is why evil persists in the world, because as a society, we haven't had enough people reach a point of individual elevation to change the social consciousness, to change what we accept as a culture, as a people. And that's what this book is really about is trying to get more people, more individuals to care just a little bit more, yeah. to have just a little bit more empathy. If they can see someone who looks different, talks different, and lives different, and recognize that they're still human and okay, and care about their well-being, even just a fraction, that's a little bit less harm that they're able and willing to cause. Mm-hmm. And little bits go a long way because now say, so for me, I had, I spent five years at Walmart and I came into contact with tens of people, tens of thousands maybe. And I can only imagine what would happen if every person I came into contact with 
hides away, angry, frustrated, and hateful. You never know what other bad people they go and impact. Yeah. You have people who go to the store, have a bad day, and go home and take it out on their wife or their kids. That's not okay. But the flip side of that is that you send someone away with a good experience, the likelihood that they will pass that on is as high, if not higher. We have a natural propensity for feeling good. And we almost all feel good when we make others feel good because others usually express appreciation. We love appreciation as a species. We love to know that someone thinks highly of us. Yeah. And so we'll spread more of that, more of these positive interactions, the more people will, will count. And I, I, I've had a discussion recently, I'm going on a slight tangent. No, um, I love regarding shadow work versus light work. Yeah. The left-hand path versus the right-hand path. And I think, in all honesty, the two really aren't in opposition. They're, they support each other. What people don't realize is that a lot of times, the deeper you dive into the shadow, the, the more that you look at the ugly stuff, the easier it is to light to that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's really the point of, of all of it, is to, to bring light where people are stumbling in darkness. I love that, Andre. And I actually do want to talk about that too, because I feel like that's the the main focus of this book and what differentiates it from those other texts, as I was saying, and what makes it such a, a practical, useful tool for folks who want to do mm-hmm. this racism work, both on an individual level for themselves and that like, you know, personal development level. And I don't mean personal development in terms of like, oh, you know, my white feelings and my, my, my growth as a white person, but just like that personal development in terms of that, you know, what I call the soul rediscovery, which is coming back to the wholeness, mm-hmm. coming back to source. Um, but also on the collective level of, okay, how can I do good in the world? How can I contribute in my own community, right, in this anti-racism work? And um, and that's the shadow. And I think that, oh God, I loved, I can't wait to hear what you have to say about this, but I just wanted to comment quickly on something that you said, and that is with the light work and the shadow work, because you know, I identify as a light worker. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's funny that I have to, <laughs> I say I identify, um, but I, I, you know, I'm a light worker. And, um, and I think a lot of people think that that means that I don't do shadow work. And I actually, I do know light workers who don't do shadow work. And that makes no sense to me. <laughs> Because it's like, and and the shadow should not be vilified. You know, I always say that the shadow is like that dark, divine feminine energy, usually. Mm -hmm. And it's, and a lot of times too, I find with my clients that shadow is literally just what is not socially acceptable. Um, Although sometimes it is, you know, what you talk about in your own work of, of that part of ourselves that we've, you know, internalized and taken on from our society that is that, for lack of a better word, like evil or dark or something part. Um, You know, I don't personally believe in in evil, I believe in darkness. Um, But I, I think that there, you know, it's even like a sixth dimensional consciousness thing that darkness is there for us to see the light 
you know, and the two, the, the two coexist. We live in a world of polarity and we need both. And so a big part of at least my light working is the integration of shadow and looking at that shadow side, right? Looking at those ugly things that we don't want to look at because you say this in your book, but the more, what is it? The more we resist, it persists or something Absolutely. like that. Yeah, yeah. So the, the second I read that, I mean, I was reading it on my computer, but if I was reading it in book form, I would have like underlined it, highlighted it because it's so true. I mean, it really is. And that's where I feel the crux of this healing and anti-racism work has to happen because again, people say, oh, that's not me right? Like, oh, but I have black friends. Like, oh, I don't think that about black people. Like, that's not me. I'm not racist. But again, we have to understand that we were born into a society that is inherently racist, unfortunately, and has mm -hmm, racist mm -hmm. structures already embedded in it. And so we have to constantly be interrogating that shadow of ourselves, you know, and, and not... Absolutely. Yeah, and not just push it away or other it, right? That objection again of othering it and saying, oh, no, that's not me. That's not me. It's like, no, but you're engaged in this society. So it is you, right? And so, like, exactly. I, yeah, like, I even, you know, it was funny because when this all happened, a lot of people were saying, oh, I don't want to pass the buck. I don't want to pass the buck. You know, people who were talking about, oh, I'm doing anti-white people who were talking about, I'm doing anti-racism work and I don't want to pass the buck. And I'm like, that's a racist term. <laughs> and yeah. and it's, it's little things like that, that we just, people don't realize, you know, like it's just so embedded, not just in American culture, but, you know, especially in our recent, um, history too, because going back millions of years, you know, um, black communities actually ruled the world, and and it's just really mm -hmm. been in our most recent history that we remember, and that's in the history books that we see, um, you know, black people in this way, and so yeah, so I would love for you to touch on the shadow work and the shadow integration that goes into this anti-racism work. Cause that's the part that I just find so illuminating, <laughs> you know, ironically enough, but it's, yeah, it's, a, it's very illuminating to bring in the shadow. And that was a lot of the work I was doing with my own clients too, in the thick of this last wave of um, black lives matter and, and even still. So yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts on that more. Oh, absolutely. Um, integrating the shadow is oh so important. And this is why So I, I, I did my very best to model empathy in the very structure of this book, because this is a topic that people are inclined to run from. Mm -hmm. I, we are, by default, inclined to run from things that make us feel uncomfortable yeah. or guilty or accused. And so in order to do this work, you have to be able to look at what's in the shadow, but have courage to keep looking. Because what we'll find is not always pretty. What we'll find a lot of times is that who we thought we were isn't always accurate. For mm -hmm. example, a brief example, we live in a, a, a really extortionist, extractive consumer capitalist society. And a lot of us are very much like, overtly against poverty mm -hmm. but at the same time we support capitalism that 
has been molded. Like I'm not against capitalism on principle, but the way that we do it, it's by default molded right. to exploit others. We love having our, our smartphones and our technological advances. Never mind the fact that they're created in essentially sweatshop factories overseas where people are making pennies per day. Yeah. And if we like we have to be able to accept that even as the with the best of intention and with the most level of consciousness we are still benefiting from a system that exploits others. And that doesn't necessarily make us bad people, but it's something to recognize. And this is what I talk about with, with privilege, is that there's something to recognize in how you benefit and how others are affected by the ways that you benefit. Yeah. And so in terms of shadow integration, this is what we're looking for. These moments where we have to realize, oh my God, my lifestyle is hurting someone else and I had no idea. And it's going to make you feel like a bad person at first, but you have to recognize that you didn't create it, but you can find ways to try to create more equity, even it out to, to make a difference. And so that's really what we're looking for and why doing a shadow work is important because you'll find things. And so I give a, a step-by-step process that works for me with my situation. Mm-hmm. Other shadow workers and light workers might have their own steps, but what it boils down mm-hmm. to for me, first and foremost, is you have to understand why you're doing this. And it's because your motivation is really what's going to be kind of your anchor. If, you, if the reason that you want to engage with this work is simply to look good for your friends or for a social media right. post, Right. You're not going to continue very far. You're going to make some serviceable posts and make everyone think that you're doing the work, but really you're posing literally. Right. And so if you have a strong enough why, it will anchor you as you go forward because what you'll find is stuff that will be uncomfortable. Um, that being said, the next thing you have to do is acknowledge that your shadow exists. Acknowledge that there are parts of yourself that you don't understand, parts of yourself that you probably won't like, and accept that it's going to be there. But you have to keep looking anyway. The reason for this is because if you don't even acknowledge that it exists, you don't even know what to look for. Right. Um, from there, you have to you know, analyze your behaviors and interactions. And this is really where you start to understand what your shadow is doing. Shadow is called a shadow because it's hidden. We can't really see it. But you know it's there based off of what appears in your life um, in terms of manifestations and magic. What we create around us is evidence of what's going on inside. In more practical terms, our actions our thoughts, our interactions and behaviors are evidence of what we're actually thinking and feeling. There is a, a thought loop that happens wherein we perceive something, have an emotional response that triggers a thought that triggers a behavior. Mm-hmm. And so the behavior is really the evidence of a perception. And the perception is tied to 
our beliefs. And so if you can trace back your, your behaviors through this thought chain, you can find out what's actually running. It's, uh, it's like a program running in the background in your computer that you don't know is there. Right. Like all your startups, you don't right. even know that they're running, but they're eating up all your CPU. Same <laughs> thing happens. And what people don't know is the subconscious mind is doing so much more than our conscious mind ever. Yeah. Because we're walking, we're breathing, we're, we're digesting, we're thinking, we're hearing and seeing, taking all this input and creating the world around us for ourselves. And it's all happening without our effort at all, without our conscious thought. Right. And if you allow that to continue without being aware, you may not realize that what you're doing in response to these perceptions and, and default programs is actually based off of false input. The idea that someone who looks differently than you is more dangerous. You consciously don't think that, but perhaps you had an aunt or an uncle or someone that said, oh, we don't go to that part of town. It's more dangerous over there. Mm -hmm. And all you see over there are black people who are quote unquote sketchy looking. Mm -hmm. You then start to do associations between uh, black people who look this way and danger. And so anytime you see someone who looks like this, it's going to appear dangerous. And granted, I know this is to be a fact because even I have these moments. I grew up in, and I'm currently living in San Bernardino which, again, continues to make that, that top five list of most dangerous cities. Yeah. So I see even my own people, and I get nervous. I get nervous, not necessarily because they're Black, but because the environment that I'm in, I recognize as a dangerous environment, even if these people actually aren't dangerous at all. Yeah. There's a reaction that I have to be aware of. And this is where you have to start rethinking your thoughts. Um, the perceptions that we have about people aren't always true. Going to a commercial mechanic or auto shop because it looks cleaner and is in a nicer area and everything looks more presentable, meaning that it's actually a better shop than right. a Jose's Tires down the road or Urban's Auto Body. They're mm -hmm. individually owned self, uh, businesses of, of people of color, but perhaps the appearance isn't always the same. Or on the side of town where people are getting out on the street, it doesn't look the same. So we prejudge, but really no idea what level of service we're going to get. And this is where you have to practice mindfulness. Once you start rethinking your thoughts and become aware of what thoughts are actually happening, all you have to do is watch. Watch thoughts, guard your thoughts, and understand that what you are thinking in a moment, even if it's a subconscious thought, is what's creating both your perception and your behavior and what reflects back to you and around you as we are putting that out there as much as it's coming back to us. Through yeah. mindfulness, we can start to listen to and recognize that's not a thought that's in alignment with what I believe, what I consciously believe. And you can't pull out that thought. Mm -hmm. And 
from there, it becomes really imperative as you start to be aware of what thoughts are happening to forgive yourself for these thoughts existing, for prejudice existing, because you create it, they were put into you. You were a blank slate when you showed up, more or less. And so now you have to unlearn stuff. Right. And the work, as you become aware of it, is going to bring you up the feelings once again. And if you let that seize you, it will stop you from moving forward because you'd rather not feel guilty. Someone's going to come along and say, this is all bull crap. You're not a bad person and racism doesn't exist. Put the book down. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be inclined to believe that because it makes you feel better. In truth, what you're looking for in that feeling, you can get yourself. Forgive yourself for not being perfect, for not knowing what you didn't know, for having triggers. You're right. human. And then finally, decide on a new behavior in advance. We're not going to be able to escape our triggers and the things that we're facing. But if you can recognize that you're going to have certain thoughts and situations or that they will come up, you can give yourself and decide in advance what you're going to do when you let yourself have a negative thought that not align with your behavior or with belief. Yeah. And if you can do that, you can say, for example, oh, I'm walking the street and I recognize he's sketchy and dangerous. Let me put my guard up. Realize, why is your guard up? Let me relax a little bit and just go about my business. Maybe in a more dangerous area, be more vigilant, but I'm not going to assume that everyone here is out to get me. And over time, you'll notice a little change in how you see people and how you interact with people. Maybe the person that's approaching you isn't out here to rob you. Maybe he's for real just looking for 25 cents and get a taco or some deodorant. Maybe he needs that last little bit to get some gas money. We don't always know. And if we assume that everyone out there is bad, we're always going to be mode will always be in opposition and we'll always see a villain and so when things like this happen on on the news where we have instances of police brutality you're desensitized to it because the people who are being who are the victims of this somewhere in your mind you didn't even think of them as legitimate people anyway and that's what we have to turn off is the idea that these other people are illegitimate and it's just to kill them yeah. They got what they deserved. Because did they really? No, not at all. Yeah, beautifully said. And I think that you kind of brought up a big part of it too, which is recognizing that unconscious bias. But I think a big part of it also that you kind of touched on earlier is just listening. You know, like mm, li- absolutely. Yeah, like listening more than you are are putting out, <laughs> you know, like more than you're reacting. But um you know, I, I know for myself that that has been a big, big, big part of um, my journey in doing anti-racism work is it's, and especially listening to people of color, obviously, obviously, but really just, you know, in general in life, listening <laughs> can just get you, get you so much farther, you know, because, and you, you bring this up so beautifully in the book too about like you said, like not making those assumptions, right? With the the experience that you talk about with um, 
the the man that you were managing right at work and having that difficult conversation with him and I think like I read that and I truthfully was crying because I was like this is the world I want to live in is the world where people bravely have these conversations and also just listen you know have some empathy and and see people as people rather than as like dispensable or you know other than or anything like that but really understand the the struggles and the the heart of all these people and even the the instance that you brought up with your boss too you know and like i've known white people like that who say shit like that and and i've like literally just been like oh my god what possessed you to think that that was a good idea you know but for them they're like oh no that's me relating, you know, like that's me saying, oh, I've been there too, boy, you know, and I'm just like, yeah, but I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, oh, that's not the best way to go about it. But let like, but instead of, you know, obviously if someone says something blatantly racist again, we need to call them out. It's not about preserving white feelings, but it's also about understanding that we're all coming from our own place. We're all coming from our own experiences. Like, just like you had that conversation, I believe her name was Ashley, the girl over book yeah. too. You know, same thing where it's like it's just, um, it's it's listening. I think especially for for white people um, and and non-black people of color too. In certain instances, it's it's listening. <laughs> it's just shutting the fuck up and listening to an experience that's that's different than your own, and then integrating that right and then again doing the shadow work and checking checking your own biases right checking your own reactions to those things because when I first started doing this work it was so uncomfortable it was really uncomfortable it's really hard for me to hear that white people suck and white people are horrible and and all of this because like that's my family you know and just like you you know as a soul you did but right but you didn't really you know, on the human level, choose to be black, like I didn't choose to be white. And so it's like, it's like you were saying, when we judge each other by things like that, that's, you know, not helpful to begin with, right? Because it disconnects us even further from our real sole purpose of being here in our unity consciousness. But at the same time, mm-hmm. also, it can be really difficult when you're starting to do this work. Um, and you're starting to dismantle all of this and, and look at your own privilege because it's like, well, I didn't choose that, you know, and also I've had difficulties in my life. Right. And so I just, I loved the way that you handled it by, um, explaining the instances in, in each of those stories where it was just really about having empathy for the other, but also listening. And I really did just want to add to, for any white people listening to this podcast that, it just, that is where the majority of your growth and your actual service as an ally will happen is just shutting the fuck up and listening. <laughs> Absolutely. I think for me as an African-American, as a Black person here in America, and the author of this book, Faith and Chism, I said the most important work for me was not to tell people how bad they are or the horrible history that exists. There are tons of books that are already out there about that. So you mentioned earlier, you know, you appreciated how focused and, and relatable and approachable this book is. That was very much deliberate. 
because the heart of the message, again, is not just about racism, but about connection, about rebuilding and helping. I had a conversation with someone while I was still writing the book, one of the few people who knew, because I wrote it in secret, like I was on the couch just typing feverishly for hours and people were like, what are you working on? I'm like, oh, just working late tonight. No, actually, I was I was downloading a book from Source. Um, it really is about helping people who overcome their lower inclinations, so that they can be empowered to do what they believe in. Because I was having a conversation with one of my relatives, and he says, "You know, that's not." our place as black people to be teaching white people how to be better. I said, you know, who gets to decide that? Because at the end of the day, don't we have the same goal? If I want someone to be better, should I not at the same time give them a way to be better? And this is something that I learned very well at Walmart, actually, in management, is that when you have an expectation for someone, you also are then responsible at some level of ensuring that they understand that expectation and communicating how they're supposed to meet it. And so in terms of helping white people to be able to start doing anti-racism work, the onus is on me, at least at some point, if I'm going to step out into this role, to help, to be a helper. And even if others disagree, that's fine. They don't have to help. But at least in my opinion, it makes the most sense to extend a hand to help people because there are a lot of white people who care and would like to make a difference Yeah. in some regard, but they don't necessarily know how. They don't right. necessarily know what's the right step what they can do. Right. Some of them probably would do more if they felt like they were seen and understood. Like someone's not going to bash them for being the white person at the protest. Right. Like at the end of the day, we need you. We need all of you. We all need each other. Black, white, Hispanic, Arabic, Asian, Indian. We all need each other. And the last thing that we do if we want to work together is make someone feel like their efforts aren't good enough. Mm-hmm. What, what would be the point of trying if the people that you're trying to help are like, you're white, you don't have a voice here. Yeah. That makes no sense. That makes absolutely no sense to me. And that's where I get a little bit fired up because I think that when it comes to anti-racism work, there is a lot of justified anger. Yeah that can often be misdirected. And it's time for all individuals from all races to, to just level up a bit more, yeah. to love up a little bit more and decide what they want to put out. And if you're only gonna put more anger and division, you are actively counteracting the goal that you are trying to create. That's it, into the magic, in terms of manifestation, in terms of actually trying to create something new. If you continue to put out the same energy that has been consciously, unconsciously creating what exists, that is all you're going to get out mm-hmm. is the exact same. 
So in my opinion, there's absolutely no harm in taking a different approach where I say, okay, white people, you say you're not racist? I'll take you at your word for it. Let's put our money where our mouths are and here's how you can put some action behind that. Here's how you actively be less racist because this is what you say you want to be. Here's the tools to be more aligned with your beliefs. And then you can tell me you're not racist. Then you can tell yourself you're not racist because now you know, and that knowing creates power for change. Mm, so powerful, Andre. I just, I love that so much. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, it's not really my place as a white person to say what's justified anger and what's not, but I do want to say, you know, I, I hold space for that justified anger 100%, but just speaking about it in terms of anything, right, not just race work, but anything justified anger is it's like, okay, but then what is that anger propelling you to do? You know what I mean? Like, what is that anger? What change is that anger asking you for? Um, and I definitely, I definitely feel that from you. And I do think it is bringing in the conscious perspective, you know, that really helps you see like there's a bigger, there's a bigger thing at play here, whether you believe in God, spirit, universe, nature, like doesn't matter, but you can still have empathy for your fellow human being and you can still, um, you know, feel like it is, it is your moral obligation and your moral duty and something that not only you should do, but you should want to do, right? Like you should, mm -hmm. you should want to help lift up your fellow man and woman in person. Like that's, that's my big thing too. And I also did want to say too, and we're kind of running out of time and we'll just have to have you on again. Cause I want to talk to you about a bunch of things. Oh, <laughs> but, we'd um, be happy to come back anytime. Yeah. Yeah. I would love that. I would be so honored. But um, one thing I just wanted to say for, for the white people listening um, is that I think a big piece of this too is, and this is a shadow is releasing the shame Right. And I always, whenever I'm working with clients who have shadow around this or they're asking me, because it's a lot of well-meaning white people who are like, I just feel so, they're like, I don't understand how I can be unapologetic in who I am, but then also feel like so guilty, right, for this thing. And, and I don't yeah. even know what to do because I didn't create it. Like, I don't feel like I'm racist, but I still feel like, horrible that I grew up with this unconscious bias and you know all this stuff and I say well you got to release like the ego out of it you know like you just Absolutely. have yeah like that's not doing your friends of color your your communities of color that you're hoping to serve through your own anti-racism work both individual and collective because like if you have shame around it and if you're constantly apologizing for who you are, like that's not helping anyone, you know? Right. You're apologizing for who you are. You're not stepping into your power as a team. Right. Yeah. And so I'm like, so engage with it, you know, understand that you don't know everything, right? You only know your mm -hmm. experience. I think Peggy McIntosh does an amazing job of going over this, but it's an invisible thing, right? Privilege is an privilege is invisible because what it is is yeah it's the absence of the experience <laughs> you know what I mean so it's like it's hard for people because privilege is so 
invisible. And unless you're walking a mile in, in somebody else's shoes, then you don't experience it personally unless, you know, maybe you're in the room with them when it happens or something. And in terms of privilege, what makes it so difficult is because you can't see it until you're exposed to someone right. who doesn't have it. Like for you, your privilege is normal. It's normal life. These are things that we think everyone has mm-hmm. and able to live in that way. And until someone else comes up who tells you that it's not true for everyone, you don't become exposed, aware of the fact that how you're living is privileged. And so a lot of times, then, and this is how, how really kind of slick we, we've been as a people here, is that we have a very staunch adherence to the idea of meritocracy, that you get what you work right. for. Right. And so that mindset, not a bad mindset in itself, yeah. But staunch adherence to it the way that we have it, it shows, it, it prompts us to think that someone who has less than us obviously didn't work hard enough to get to where we right. quote unquote are. Yeah. And it precludes the idea that we can talk about privilege because, well, if I'm here, there's no way I'm privileged about it because I work for it or someone in my family had to work for it. And they're not entirely the whole story. Someone, someone certainly had to work for it, but the distribution of labor and benefits was not necessarily decided based off of, of work. And I think for our, a lot of white people who, who may be listening, understanding that is a challenge. And this is where more anti-racists, especially within the black community, have to be able and willing to meet them where they are and take them by the hand. It may seem petty, it may seem overdone, but you don't dismantle 400 years of racism and prejudice just overnight right. or in any easy way. Right. Like you have to get into the with it. You have to take the small baby steps because if you start off running, you're going to run in all the wrong directions. And I think, like you said, there are so many well-meaning white people who yeah. really feel a lot of shame around it. Yeah. And it's a justified shame. We should all feel ashamed of what has been created at different level of our consciousness as a people. Yeah. And if you believe in past lives, I'm sure a lot of us incarnated in different roles in previous lives. Yeah. And so our, our responsibility in this lifetime is to undo the mess that we created. Even if it wasn't constantly what we created in this lifetime, it's a shameful thing, but let the thing be ugly and you can still be beautiful because you're, you're not the thing. You're not the one who created it and you see the ugliness in it, which means you can, in fact, be better than it and create something better than it. Beautiful. It's like yeah. this old Christian saying, you know, hate the sin, not the sinner. We're in, in that perspective. Some might say we're sinners. I don't necessarily subscribe to that, but in the terms of this conversation, we're all guilty of some things, mm-hmm. but we're not all guilty of all things. And we can meet each other there and, and help each other to grow and round out our shortcomings. We're all flawed. We're all human. We all have the same goal of, of 
live well and being treated well. Let's, yeah. let's help each other do that. That's really the bottom line of this book. Let each other all get better. As a matter of fact, there, there's this old, um, it's, a, it's an African idea, an African concept called, I believe it's Ubuntu. Mm -hmm. And it's basically the idea of community. And the quote that often I find associated with it is the idea that if one of my brothers is suffering, how can we say that we as a community are good? Yeah. That we're okay, that we're helped. We need to lift that person up and then we can be good. And I think that black people are suffering in one way and white people are suffering equally in other ways. We can end the suffering, at least in part, by helping each other get to the common goal. Yeah, beautifully said. Beautifully, beautifully said. Oh my goodness, Andre. Well, this has been such an incredible discussion with you. And like I said, I, I could sit here for four more hours <laughs> and even longer exactly, having this, right. this discussion. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something for me personally I'm really engaged with. I actually, it was interesting, during Black Lives Matter, um, I did a past life regression and my most traumatic life was as a young Black woman. And I just found it really poignant to um, have that experience and to remember that life so vividly as all of this was happening. And it kind of made sense for me too why this is something that I feel very drawn to um, working with in this life. And I mean, I feel that way about all kinds of oppressions. I have a Libra moon. So, um, you know, inequality in general is just... I can't stand it. It's the number one thing that makes me really upset and that I feel very driven towards um, working against and dismantling these systems of oppression and these patriarchal systems that are just holding us back from our evolution in so many different ways so much. But um, I just so enjoy you being on here today and I'm so beyond honored to have this conversation with you. I really hope that people take this to heart. I really hope that people buy your book and do all the steps. Um, even if they've done this work before, I just think that it's a really wonderful lens through which to do it. And I just wanna thank you so much for taking the time out today. And I wanted to ask you, um, we haven't even said the name of the book. So if you wanna say the name of the book and where people can buy it, and then also, you know, just let us know where we can follow you. Ooh, okay, well, again, thank you so much for having me on here. Um, my book is called Facing Racism, The Guide to Overcoming Unconscious Bias and Hidden Prejudice to Be a Part of Change. And it is available on Amazon. It's Amazon exclusive currently, but um, it will be available on September 8th for ebook and print book purchase. Currently on pre-order for 99 cents. That will be changing over to course, but please get it while you can, share it with your friends, let people know about this book, because even if we don't think we need it, we can be the answer to someone else's errors. And I think that in sharing it, we can get it to the people who actually do. And um, currently I don't have a whole bunch of social media for the book specifically, but you find me on Facebook, Andres Jr. I'm sure you will find all kinds of interesting commentary and 
social justice movement and on personal development and change. That is where I live, is personal development and helping people to overcome this sort of issue within themselves. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And yeah, we'll definitely have to have you on again and, and continue this discussion and have other discussions as well. Cause I'm like, Ooh, now I want to know about your mystery teachings and the whole process too. And I know that I, I said this to you, um, kind of at the beginning of this, but I have to say that I think, I mean, I think that women are doing really amazing work and, and people who identify as non-binary and trans and the whole thing, but I really think that there's something special when a man does this kind of work because I think that for so long we've just had so much um, collective wounding when it comes to the masculine. And so I just, I just really honor you, you know, as a man, as a person, as a soul for doing all of this and for sharing your gifts with the world. And for those who are listening, Andre is a fantastic writer. Like I knew it was going to be a great book because I, I know him um, through our friend Dallin, but uh, you are a really fantastic writer, my friend, really just engaging and entertaining but informative and it's it's a really I read it all in one sitting it's a really wonderful um quick but impactful read so thank you again Andre so much and we'll definitely have to have you on again and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day thank you you all it's been a pleasure and I look forward to more conversations yeah definitely <laughs> wasn't that fantastic I just get so much out of listening to Andre speak. Like I said in the intro, he has so much wisdom to share, not only on this, but also on so many other things that I know we're going to have him on again to talk about all of the mysteries and everything, because obviously I'm interested in the priestess line and lineage of the mysteries, and he is interested in the priest line and lineage of the mysteries. So very, very, very just illuminating man and soul. So honored that we had him on this podcast. And he actually messaged me right before I got on to record this outro to tell me that he actually has books that he has signed. So he has signed copies available. So if you share this podcast, and tag him, or if you go ahead and reach out to him and DM him about listening to this podcast and getting connected with him and his incredible work, then he can hook you up with a signed copy, which you will definitely want because he is most definitely a rising figure in this movement. And as a reminder, this is not just a moment, this is a movement. These are conversations that we need to continue to have, that we will continue to have. Specifically on this podcast, I had a brilliant conversation with my friend Truly Polite, who is also an activist, a while back that I still haven't aired that I'm going to be airing on this podcast soon as well. So like I said, continue to have these conversations in your communities, continue to bring light to this, you know the movement towards equality and equity is not ending anytime soon, nor should it, because we have hardly reached the end. 
And I think that 2021 is really going to shed more light on that. So I really, really, really encourage you to keep exploring, keep being curious, keep having grace with yourself, no matter how you're approaching this or from whichever perspective you're approaching this from. You know, if you are a white person or you are a person with more privilege, as we talk about these things, really listen and really absorb and take in what can I do and how can I use my privilege to dismantle the systems of oppression rather than promoting them. That's something that I try to ask myself all the time. So I am sending you guys all the love. I really hope you enjoyed this episode with Andre as much as I did recording it. I hope that the audio problems weren't too bad and that you are still able to soak up all his little nuggets of wisdom. Again, shout out to my editor Carmelo and his never-ending patience. (laughs) For me and my technical difficulties, we love you, Carmelo. And I hope you guys have a wonderful week. And until next time, enjoy your journey.